The Where Our Minds Wander podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings, fellow wanderers, to the places our minds wander. Where strange lights speed beyond reason across a clear night sky. The house at the end of the road where disembodied voices whisper and strange noises make the living shiver. Lurking shadows hiding on the edge of the woods just outside your back door. Odd true events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And this is where our minds wander. Welcome to the second episode of Where Minds Wander. Hope you're all having a great week. It's been a pretty long week so far, but today after dinner we decided to uh, take a walk downtown and uh, and check out some of our favorite stores, see what was new, see what they had to offer, see, you know, what had been delivered out throughout the week because we hadn't had a chance to stop by. So uh, I ended up finding a uh, Aphrodite statue that was pretty cool. And uh, Beth picked up, uh, what'd you get, Beth? Well, we like to collect stuff. So that was pretty cool that you got to add to your collection. And I added to my collection too, because right now I'm really into tarot cards um, for the artwork that's in them. Because some of the artwork is gorgeous, right? So I was totally psyched to pick up an Aleister Crowley Thoth tarot card deck. Because I had just finished researching Crowley for a future episode. So that was very serendipitous. I was pretty psyched about that. Yeah, the the artwork on that deck was really cool. I think people just assume uh, when they think tarot cards, they think tarot readings. But it's not really just the case. I mean, the artwork on some of these decks are gorgeous. Like the Salvador Dali deck I showed you. That was very cool. You didn't show me how it expensive it is though well <laughs> then you wouldn't have bought it <laughs> speaking of good finds uh what's your story about tonight my story is about uh the mystery of bella in the witch elm oh that sounds like a good one you ready as dusk was falling on april 18th 1943 Four teenage boys were sneaking through Hagley Woods, a stretch of English woodland on the grounds of the Hagley Hall estate, belonging to a Lord Cobham. The four boys, Bob Hart, Tom Willits, Fred Payne, and Bob Farmer, were trespassing. They were hoping to find a rabbit or two worth poaching to supplement their meager meat ration. The nightly German bombing raids had taken their toll, and the boys, accompanied by their dogs, hoped to get in and out without running into an angry gamekeeper. After a while, Bob Farmer spotted a witch elm, named for its strange appearance, and he decided to climb it, hoping to find a bird's nest. Witch elms, spelled W-Y-C-H, are the only elm native to the UK, and they have a slightly longer leaf than other elm trees. Anyway, Bob Farmer climbed the tree and looked down into its hollow trunk. A glimmer of white convinced him that he had hit the jackpot. However, 
when Bob pulled it out, expecting to find twigs and eggs, he found himself staring at a skull. Oh my God, can you imagine looking down and finding a skull? <laughs> I know. And at first, he thought that the skull was an animal, until he noticed clumps of what looked like human hair clinging to it and crooked teeth protruding from its mouth. The boys, freaking the frick out, fled the woods, promising each other that they wouldn't tell a soul, terrified of getting in trouble. Despite the promise, 17-year-old Tom Willits, feeling it couldn't go unreported, told his parents, and they called the police. Ah, good boy. Yes. (laughs) The area was soon cordoned off, and inside the ominous-looking hollow and twisted tree, they found a woman's entire skeleton. Oh, my God. Yeah, not all of her, though. Her hand was missing. The bones were soon discovered scattered around the tree. Costume jewelry, including an imitation gold ring and size five-and-a-half crepe-soled shoes, were also found a short distance away. Scraps of poor-quality clothing hung from the bones, and a piece of taffeta fabric was stuffed inside the mouth of the skull, indicating to police that the victim had been suffocated. Oh, foul play. Could be. The medical examiner, Professor James Webster, concluded that the woman was around 35 years old, had irregular teeth in her upper jaw, light brown hair, and she was just five feet tall. He also determined that the woman had given birth to one child in her lifetime and estimated that she had been dead for around 18 months, putting her estimated day of death at October 1941. Professor Webster was certain that the unknown woman was a victim of murder. He said, I cannot imagine a woman accidentally slipping in there. Neither do I think it reasonable for a woman to crawl into that place to commit suicide. Why would anybody go into a tree to commit suicide? You, you think they'd want to be found after. Right, which is why I think he, he kind of nixed that idea right yeah. away. He also concluded that the woman had been stuffed inside the hollow trunk while the body was still warm before rigor mortis. Otherwise, the body would have been too stiff to fit inside the narrow tree trunk. Professor Webster also maintained that the victim would most likely have been killed close to the spot where she was found. Otherwise, the killer would not have been able to transport her body to the tree before rigor mortis. Further evidence was that single piece of taffeta lodged inside the skull's mouth. Initially, it was thought that the boys had wrapped the taffeta around a stick and inserted it into the skull while trying to pull it out of the witch elm. But it's pretty unlikely that any of them would be carrying a stray piece of taffeta, which was typically used for women's... Undergarments. uh, Yeah, undergarments. Webster cited the taffeta as further evidence that she was murdered by suffocation. Immediately... Worcestershire police contacted every dentist in the area, hoping that one of them would recognize the woman's distinctive protruding and overlapping teeth. Dental records were not common at that time, though, so it proved fruitless. They also combed through piles of missing persons reports to see if any of them matched the description of the deceased, to no avail. The investigation then turned toward the personal effects found at the scene. The crepe-soled shoes were traced to the Waterfoot Company, and investigators were able to find the owners of all but six pairs, which had been sold from a market stall in Dudley 
a town about 11 miles from Birmingham. Eventually, this line of inquiry also ran cold. Police chalked it up as unsolved and moved on. It seemed as though most people forgot about the woman in the tree until Christmas 1943. Mysteriously, a message in chalk appeared on the side of a house in nearby Old Hill, which read, Who put Lubella in the witch elm? No one admitted to knowing anything about it or why a name was suddenly mentioned. No one would even admit to knowing anyone named Lubella. Soon after, another message appeared, this one simply stating, Hagley Wood Bella. That's suspicious. It is. And it continued, because over the next several months, many similar messages appeared, all seemingly written by the same person. And gradually, the message writer settled on the same question each time. Who put Bella in the witch elm? Police reopened the case, again searching the missing persons records, this time focusing on the name Bella. When nothing came up, the concerned public, from townsfolk to scholars, began weighing in with theories. In 1945, Margaret Murray, a philosophy professor and folklorist at University College London, theorized that the real answer to Bella's end lay in the fact that one of her hands was detached from her body, its fingers scattered around the witch elm. Rumors of witches' sabbaths in Hagley Wood swirled around the community, and Murray was convinced that Bella had been slain by her coven in a witch trial. Murphy cited an occult ritual called the Hand of Glory, in which the hand of a person who had perished on the gallows, which Bella had not, could be used for supernatural purposes. But more supposed evidence could be tied to this ritual, like that wad of taffeta that was wedged in her mouth. The fact that her severed hand had been left 13 paces from the skeletal remains, also an ancient custom. The choice of tree was also significant. Which elms play an important part in the black arts? So, too, was the murder scene, Hagley Wood, rumored by locals for a very long time to be a popular spot for occult practices. And perhaps somebody was thinking that, and it's the perfect way to cover up and thinking, oh, let's point it towards the witches. Exactly. I mean, why would anybody doing occult practice stick taffeta in a skeleton in a tree? I mean, animals could have scattered those hands and fingers yeah, for sure. Around the trunk. For sure. And I think the that the, makes no sense. the 13 paces thing too. I mean, what are paces exactly? Are they an exact measurement or are they I thought paces was walking. Well, right? I think that was their measurement back then. Oh, okay. A rough estimate. Okay, cuz I was going to say paces could be exaggerated. Well, when could... you think of pirate's treasure, they do the paces. Right. You know. Right. The occult theory stuck around, though, and it was cranked up the following. Oh, it was cranked up following the murder of Charles Walton in February 1945 on nearby Meon Hill, because he was found skewered to the ground by a pitchfork, and Satanism was immediately suspected by townsfolk. While the press and public were enraptured with the witchcraft theory, police could find no evidence that linked the Hagleywood remains to the occult, and they dismissed that theory too. Fast forward eight years to 1953, 
and a woman who went by Anna of Claverley contacted a local newspaper, stating that she had information regarding Bella's demise. Anna was reportedly interviewed by police, and she told them that Bella had been a German spy who worked with a British officer. Bella apparently got in too deep and ended up stuffed in the tree. That's a theory I can buy. Well, yeah, because during World War II in that area, several German spies were captured in the UK, and that area itself housed several munition factories. Anna, Anna was later identified as Una Mossop, and she alleged that her RAF pilot husband, Jack Mossop, had witnessed Bella's death. She said that Mossop told her that he had become involved in a spy ring, along with a Dutchman who went by Van Ralt. One evening, this Van Ralt guy, Mm -hmm. accompanied by a woman Mossop believed to be Bella, had picked up Mr. Mossop in his car, and shortly after, Van Ralt strangled the woman. Una told another version of the story, And she claimed that Jack Mossop and Van Ralt had been drinking with Bella in a local pub when Bella became drunk and passed out. The two men then placed the woman in the tree to teach her a lesson. When she awoke, she was unable to climb out and perished. However, this theory doesn't explain the discovery of the taffeta stuffed inside her mouth. Jack Mossop died in St. George's Hospital before Bella's body was discovered. Allegedly, recurring nightmares of Bella's skull stuffed inside the tree ultimately led to his mental breakdown. That Van Ralt guy was never found, and investigators considered Una Mossop's testimony to be nothing more than hearsay from from an estranged wife told 12 years after the discovery of Bella's body. However, in later years... Declassified M15 files gave some weight to this whole spy thing. The files revealed information concerning a German spy named Joseph Jacobs, who was captured after breaking his ankle while parachuting into Cambridgeshire in 1941. After Jacobs' arrest, a creased photograph of the glamorous German actress and cabaret singer Clara Borel was found in his pocket. Jacobs told his interrogators that Borel was his lover and that the Third Reich had recruited her as a spy. According to Jacobs, Borel had parachuted into the West Midlands in 1941 and disappeared. Interestingly, Borel was quite popular as an actress, yet she had taken a break from acting during this time period and her whereabouts were unknown. Unfortunately, Joseph Jacobs was never able to shed any more light into Borel's fate because he was executed by firing squad in August 1941. Evidence against Clara Borel being Bella includes a height difference. Borel was tall, around 5 feet 10 inches, whereas Bella was only 5 feet, like I'd said earlier. Right. In addition, in 2016, it was discovered that Clara Borel had died in a Berlin hospital in December of 1942. In 1968, author Donald McCormick published a book titled Murder by Witchcraft, after gaining access to classified German files. McCormick claimed that during his research, he'd read a file on a spy and a cultist 
working for the Third Reich named Clarabella. He determined that Clarabella had parachuted into the area around Hagley Wood and then vanished. McCormick cited the finger bones found around the tree, as well as the pitchfork death of Charles Walton, as proof of occult rituals in the area. And since the spy theory was already well established, his book gained traction. So his theory was that she was a witch. And a spy. And a spy. Wow, what a way to just tie both things into it, grasping at straws. I mean, we do know that the Third Reich was into occultism. Right. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's far-fetched, but yeah. Modern DNA testing could finally solve the mystery, but there's one problem. Bella's remains are missing. Oh, no. Conspiracy theories. Yeah. <laughs> Following the autopsy back in 1943, Professor Webster gave the remains to a fellow professor. It's unclear when Bella's skeleton went missing from the medical school, but to date, no one has been able to find the remains that might finally solve the case. The closest possible identification of the woman in Hagley Wood may come through a facial reconstruction, which was done in 2018 based on the numerous photographs taken of her skull in the 1940s. While this technology may provide a hypothetical face, which it did, I found the reconstruction, pictures of it. Oh, really? Yes, and I'll put them on. I love reconstruction photos. Yeah, I'll put them on Facebook. Oh, I can't wait to see that. Yeah, we'll have to put those up. And I found a picture of Clara Borel, and they do look somewhat similar. Really? They do. It's intriguing. Oh, well, well, I'll definitely have to go check that out. Yeah. Yeah, we'll post those. I think Very interesting. So they did come up with this hypothetical face, but um, we still don't know her name. Nobody's right. ID'd her. The graffiti that appeared around Birmingham during the Christmas season back in 1943 was by no means an isolated incident. In 1999, an obelisk on the Hagley Hall estate was defaced with a misspelling of the age-old question, who put Bella in the witch elm? They started spelling it W-I-T-C-H in the 90s. The obelisk is now surrounded by barbed wire fencing, and the owner of Hagley Hall, the current Lord Cobham, has said the only reason he hasn't removed the graffiti is his fear that the process would ruin it. I don't know why people have to, you know, tag things, put yeah. graffiti everywhere. Yeah, I don't know. It's disgusting. In 2016, someone hung a cardboard sign on the fencing surrounding Hagley Woods that asked, who put Bella in the witch elm? Again, spelling witch, W-I-T-C-H, which... It's it's reignited people's interest. Well, good. It's bringing attention to it. It has, but they're all going back to that witchcraft theory because it's spelled W-I-T-C-H. Right. Right. Um, but hopefully, the renewed public interest will help the woman in the tree get her identity back. Yeah. In some way. It, it could possibly happen. At least, you know, there's hopefully interest being, you know, brought back to it. Even if they are spelling the the name the wrong way, maybe people go on the internet, look it up, find the correct spelling, and check out our story. Can only lead to good things. That's right. Right. So, uh, with all that said, what do you think really happened to her? I don't think it's the witchcraft theory. 
um, again, I think you know, people gossip. And I think if she was known around the town and they thought she was part of a, a coven of some kind, they would have been willing to come forward after the fact and share that gossip, I oh, think. unless they were afraid she'd cast a spell on them. Well, you know, maybe. the townsfolk could be. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I'm thinking perhaps she was a spy. She was drinking at the pub. Mossop and Van Rott were there. Either she went with them there or they saw her there. I think perhaps she did have or may have had too much to drink and um, passed out or was really tipsy. And they said, well, let's help her home. But then I think on the walk, you know, helping her home, I think, you know. Things went south. Things went south and somebody got a little touchy-feely. Some advances were made and she didn't go along with it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know. They got rid of her. They got rid of her and then put they, her in a tree thinking, hey, who's going to look inside it? You know, who's going to look in a tree? <laughs> who's going to look in a tree? <laughs> Four teenage boys. And I 18 think, months later, <laughs> I think during the scuffle, whatever may have happened. I mean, why would there be taffeta in her mouth unless you wanted to silence her? So, right. I mean, there's no reason to have taffeta in the mouth unless you're stopping somebody from calling out. Right. And they said it was a small piece, but she'd been in there for 18 months. So the fabric. And the bones of her hand could have been dealt with, with by animals. Yeah, you know, by all the little have... furry creatures running around. Yeah. Running around, flying around. I mean, that just makes more sense to me. Yep. Well, either way, she didn't meet a very nice end. She did not. And I hope someday, like I said, we can find out who she is because she at least deserves to get her name back. Oh, most definitely. Well... Perhaps it'll be solved someday, you know. That would be awesome. It would. Hey, did you know? Title 14, Section 1211 of the Code of Federal Regulations, implemented on July 16, 1969, makes it illegal for U.S. citizens to have any contact with extraterrestrials or their vehicles. Who'd have thunk it? So, what are you going to tell us about tonight? Well, to my, tonight my story is about the Boohag. The what? You've never heard of the Boohag? I have not. I heard a little bit about it, but I really never delved into it. You know, all the cryptids out there and all the different stories. And this one's slipped by me. Yeah, so, me too. So uh, I was pretty interested in it. And the more I got into it, it's like, oh, this is pretty cool. And, and I know a lot of the stories that are out there. I'm thinking, well, perhaps people have, people have never heard of this one either. I bet they haven't. So no. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. So sit back, get comfy, and let me tell you about the boo hag. Bobby Hansen was the best poker player in the county, but he had no luck in love as he was left at the altar several times. Bobby's father was sick and tired of hearing his son complain about his bad luck instead of pulling his weight at the family grocery store. Until one day, 
This old woman who delivered milk and eggs came into the store and mentioned to him that she had a daughter looking for a husband. She insisted that Bobby and her daughter would be a perfect pair, and eventually, Dad Hansen agreed to introduce Bobby and the girl at a local dance. The moment Bobby laid eyes on the dark-eyed, red-lipped girl, he was smitten, taken in by her sparkling eyes, pale skin, and sweet voice. After dancing all night, Bobby proposed the very next morning. Wow, he moves quick. He He does move quick. The girl happily agreed, as long as it was a judge who did the marrying and not a priest. Oh, that's suspicious, Bobby. Mm. Red flag. That it is. So instead of walking a mile down the road to the local church, they drove to the nearest town, and by evening, they were wed. Now, the wedding night didn't go exactly as you might expect. The new bride did cook Bobby a nice meal in the little house that he had rented for them, and he did go to bed sleepy, sleepy, But his new bride insisted that she wasn't tired and sat in a rocker beside the bed, knitting and humming. Maybe she was anxious? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I think Bobby could have coaxed her into bed, though. But Bobby couldn't coax her into the bed. (laughs) And too tired to fight, he just fell asleep. He didn't stir until the next morning, when his wife crawled into bed all hot and sweaty. Oh. Okay. Um, why was she so sweaty? Well, we'll get to that. He asked her why she was so hot and sweaty, but she refused to answer. In fact, she got a little snappish. Her eyes blazed at him in anger. A bit put off, Bobby let the matter drop. Perhaps a wise choice. Well, I'm, you know, it's he's probably thinking, I don't want to push this. I'm just into my marriage. and Very first uh, night. I, I'd I've like, known her for a day. I'd like to get some, <laughs> you know... Right. So, uh, the next night, and the next night, and the next night, this pattern continued. During the day, life was perfect. The house was clean. The cooking was good. His wife was pleasant, sweet, and loving. But at night, she refused to join him in bed. She rocked and knitted, and didn't stop until morning, when Bobby would wake up to her hot, sweaty, and mean. I mean... Yeah. Something's not right. Sounds a little evil to me. Eventually, a concerned Bobby visited the local conjure woman with a couple chickens as a gift and explained his predicament. The conjure woman knew all about the hoodoo magic as she told Bobby to pretend to go to sleep that night and watch what his new bride did. Then he was to come back right away and tell her everything. So Bobby agreed. That night, Bobby closed his eyes as his wife rocked and sang by the bed. When she was... When she was sure that Bobby was asleep, she slipped out of the chair and made her way up to the attic. So Bobby stealthily followed her up and watched her through a crack in the open door. His beautiful, lovely wife sat down at an old spinning wheel and spun her skin off. Oh my gosh. Yep. Spun the skin right off her, leaving only pulsating red muscles and blue veins. Horrified, Bobby watched as she stood up, sprang through the attic window, and then he rushed to the window right after her to see her flying into the night. Shaken and terrified, Bobby ran to the privy and was sick. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I I can blame him. I would have thought that he would have just defecated in his pants right there. (laughs) The following morning, it took every ounce of his self-control to act as if everything was normal. As soon as he could get away, Bobby ran to the home of the conjure woman and told her all about the spinning wheel and the terrible skinless creature who flew away from the 
from the attic. A boohag, the conjure woman said at once. You've married a boohag, a witch, a shapeshifter. She's lured you into her trap. You have to get rid of her before she delivers you to her boo daddy. <laughs> if you don't want, if you don't, he will eat your flesh and bones. My goodness. I was going to say Boo Daddy sounds like a good name for a band. But if they're if they're like, eating flesh and bones, maybe not. Who's your Boo Daddy? <laughs> That's got to be a bumper sticker out there. Well, if it, if it isn't, it, it will be soon, I'm yeah. sure. Distraught, naturally, Bobby asked the conjure woman what to do. She told him to get some blue paint. And as soon as his new bride left the house, he needed to spread that blue paint on every window frame and door frame in two coats. But he needed to leave just one window unpainted and then open the tiniest fraction. Bobby did what he was told. He waited till his wife shed her skin and flew out the attic window. Then he filled her shredded, her shedded skin, I'm sorry, with salt and pepper. Quickly, he painted every window and door frame blue, except one. He left one downstairs window the way it was and opened just the tiniest crack. Just before dawn, the blue boohai came flying up to the attic window. As soon as she touched the blue frame, she gave a shriek of pain and rage. Bobby listened as she flew around the house, testing each window and door, howling like a banshee when it burned her skinless hands. Eventually, she found the unpainted entrance, and she howled again in pain as her exposed muscles caught in the wood frame of the narrow opening. Wounded, the boohag ran up the attic stairs as dawn began to break. Frantic, she began pulling out her lifeless skin, not feeling the salt and pepper at first. Yeah. Back in the skin fully now, and the salt and pepper began to do its trick, burning her horribly from the inside out. Raging, the boohag threw herself against the closed attic window over and over until finally it broke, the glass shattering into thousands of pieces. <laughs> pieces. Fling herself into the morning air, the boohag floundered and then exploded. Holy cow. I know. <laughs> and I was in terror of not finding enough for her Bobby, but then she exploded. I mean, <sighs> yeah, it's such a hard time finding a, finding somebody to be with as it is. I mean, this is going to be a real disappointment. Well, I was thinking, too, when I'm hot and sweaty, I get mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you But then do. the story kind of veered off to the right. To the right. Well. I guess maybe I should throw some salt and pepper on you and see what happens when you're experiencing those <laughs> moods. Bobby never married again. He lived out his life alone and unwed. Can't really blame him there. No, not at all. I paraphrased that tariff tale from AmericanFlore.net and then got it from the book Spooky North Carolina, where it was retold by Essie Schlossler. <laughs> what was that name? Essie Schlossler. <laughs> <laughs> that that was my best attempt no more so the boohag is a creature from the Gullah culture of North and South Carolina and her story brought over by the Africans in the early part of the Carolinas colonial area she is a lovely young lady by day and a skinless part vampire part sleep paralysis demon at night sometimes she has flowing white hair once she sheds her earthly borrowed skin in Gullah culture, there is a belief that people have both a spirit and a soul. Once you die, your, your soul ascends to heaven or hell, depending on the life you've lived. 
Your spirit stays, stays behind to help you guide you and your descendants. But if you weren't an especially nice person in life, your spirit mutates into a boo hag. Escaping your skin at night, you as a boo hag can slip inside any tiny crack, like barely an open window or crevice. You will find the nearest sleeping person and crawl on top of them. Then you will suck air from the person's lung until the sun rises. When your current skin wears thin, you simply find another. There's a saying among the Gullah, don't let the hag ride you. <laughs> Again. Uh, now, now. It could be another bumper sticker. <laughs> so how do you know if a boo hag is living in your house or your neighbor's house? Well, for starters, you might smell a constant odor, odor or rot. You might feel as though the air is humid and damp when others insist it is not. Oh, uh -oh. my God, you <laughs> uh -oh. could be a boo hag. <laughs> you might wake up exhausted each morning, no. even though you thought you got a good night's rest. This is describing everything about oh, you. I, oh, no. Worst case scenario, you wake up and find the boo hag riding you. Well. <laughs> yeah, it's not you. <laughs> and if you try to fight fight it or escape it, it will steal your skin to where next. So how do you protect yourself from these things? Well, luckily there's a few things you can do. Placing a broom next to your door is a good start because a boo hag has no choice but to stop and count every single bristle. You could also hang a calendar or colander from your doorknob because colanders have a lot of holes in them. And Does the she boo have to count those too yeah she's got to stop and count every hole in the in whatever it is the colander or whatever you hang up there if it has mm -hmm. holes if you can distract her until sunrise though she can't make it back into her stolen skin and she will die the best deterrent however is paint blue remember how the old conjure woman told bobby to paint all the windows and door frames blue i do right well this is this i like this part because Blue is the sacred color of Gullah, as it's very successful in warding off evil spirits. If you've ever seen glass bottles stuck on the ends of tree branches, that's actually a Gullah tradition. Blue glass bottles specifically trap evil spirits because they, they can climb in, but they can't find their way out. Incidentally, if the bottle is on a tree, ring a rustle, it means you've trapped a spirit inside it. Huh. Yeah. I didn't know that. I've seen those bottle trees, yeah. right? Even around here up in the north. Yeah. And, and I, I just, didn't know what they were all about. Yeah. It was just people like, oh, where well, do I put this? Well, I'll put it on the end of a tree branch. <laughs> but they are pretty when the sunlight oh, yeah, bounces they're, they're, off of them and stuff. I just are. didn't realize there was a, a deeper meaning to it. Right. Haint blue is a specific name of a shade of blue that is close to the robin's egg blue. Evil spirits cannot cross bodies of water and since the hue is so close to the shade of the water spirits are very confused by the color painting your fence porch ceiling window sills and frames and door castings with haint blue ensure that evil spirits won't cross over to them oh i did not know that so i mean when i think of the south i do think a lot of those porch ceilings being blue yeah. and that it's just a what i would consider like a, a southern color didn't realize why right i was thinking well you know that it's just nice way to 
you know, integrate your colors. They've they've got some taste there. You know, right. the, the colors are just <laughs> right. bold. They're they're awesome. But nope, there's huh. a, there's a reason for it. So if all else fails and a boo hag does make it into your bedroom, you can sprinkle salt on her skin. This will burn her and make it even more difficult for her to return to her skin. It will also make her diabolically mad. And so it's really not recommended. <laughs> I would think not. <laughs> yeah. And that's my story about I love it. the boo hag. <laughs> I, I thought it was really interesting. That is really, really cool. I learned something new today about all the ways I am similar to one, but decidedly not one. Right. <laughs> well, I'm still going to stick some salt next to my, uh, on Have, my bed stand, I think. If I go to bed tonight and there's a salt and pepper shakers next to your side of the yeah, bed, it's not... and I turn the air conditioner up and complain about how hot I am. <laughs> Oh, I better watch out. So, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. What do you think? Yeah, I I think that's it. And uh, thank you for joining us. And we hope to see all you wanderers again next week. Yeah, we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to traveling with you again to the places where our minds wander. If you like what you heard, please take a moment and provide us with a five-star rating and a comment. It really helps us move up the list so people can find us. See you next week for an all-new episode of Where Our Minds Wander. <laughs>